Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. Hear God's word. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old... They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw them, saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. You may. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning. Thanks for making it out um, on Christmas week to church. Today, uh, when I was in college, I followed in the footsteps of very many college goers before me, and I went to make ends meet and got a minimum wage retail job. But I kind of got a lot more lucky than most of my college friends because I got the holy grail of retail jobs, which is Starbucks. (laughs) Not only at a very discounted price did I get to feed my caffeine addiction, but as a part-time employee, I was also able to get access to retirement savings and 401ks and stock options and health benefits. For some of you, the application of the sermon is like, all right, let's go apply at Starbucks. Um, but like most of my friends, like most of my coworkers, Starbucks was not our long-term plan. We weren't trying to build a career at Starbucks. Most of my coworkers were in college with me. One of them was in graduate school, and he was studying to be a counselor. And when he finished his degree he started the long process of looking for a job. And while he was looking for a job in his field and what he studied to be, he stayed working at Starbucks. Our regular customers would come in and they'd say, Matt, congratulations on graduating you know, with your degree. What'd you get your degree in again? And I'd jump in and say, he got his master's in Starbucks. Um, and then a couple years went by and I finished my college degree. And then I finished my seminary degree. And I found myself working, you guessed it, at Starbucks. And, you know, I really loved the job. It was a great gig, but every job has its drawbacks. And for me, the drawback was um, folks who were, shall we say, less than excited about their experience at Starbucks. And every time, every time somebody sent back their triple decaf grande, three-pump sugar-free vanilla, two sweet and low stirred-in soy extra hot cappuccino because it was too hot, I found myself thinking... I worked too hard. I spent too much time. I spent too much money, too many late nights in the library studying 
for something other than this. This is not where I'm supposed to be. Has anybody ever had an experience like that? Have you ever worked a job that was supposed to be temporary and then it didn't become temporary and maybe it's still not temporary? You ever find yourself in a relationship or a family situation or maybe even a marriage that wasn't going the way the Lifetime Channel told you to go? You ever find yourself living in a neighborhood or in a place that you never expected to live this long and you just don't see a way out? You know, as I was reflecting on my time at Starbucks, um, I realized something that was true of me, and maybe it's just true of me, but maybe it's not, and it's this. When experience doesn't meet expectation, we tend to look for escape. When experience doesn't meet expectation, we tend to look for escape. If I can't see the quick fix, the three steps, the pill that I can take, the way out just like that, then I tend to look for an escape. Just as an aside, and then I'll get back to the sermon, there's a good way to, this is a good way to measure how much we value something we have. It's not how much we'll spend or give up to get it. It's how much we'll spend or give up to make it work once we already have it. Right? And we don't just do this with our stuff. We do this with our relationships too. If I find myself in that job that was supposed to be temporary and I can't get out of it, I find myself fixating on how can I get to the next place? How can I force my experience to match my expectations? Same with that relationship, that marriage, that family situation, that place you're living. And if, if you're there, you might be ready. You might be ready to do something really drastic to change your experience, to force your experience to meet your expectation. And if that's you, And by the way, if it's not, it will be sometime, so don't tune out. If that's you, then before we do anything, let's try to answer this question together. What should we do when we're not where we expected to be? What should we do when when we're not where we expect to be? In other words, when we're in that place where our experience doesn't meet our expectations, how can we make wise decisions? How can we do the thing that on the other end of our experience we'll look back and say, that was a really wise decision instead of, oh, I've made a huge mistake. So we're going to look at that together today. If you're new or if you're just visiting us, if uh, you were here um, because you're family and in town for Christmas, or maybe you just found us on the web, we're really glad you're here. Um, I just want to let you know that we're closing out today a series. We've been journeying through the first couple chapters of Luke, just looking at the early years in Jesus' life and um, seeing what a strange way it is to save the world. And today, today, before we move on to our next series, we're just going to take one more look at one of these early accounts, and we're going to find Jesus where no one expected him to be, where no one expected it to be, and we're going to see the strange way he responded. What, is, what, what, what kind of kid is this? So, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or open your Bible apps to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 39, and if you're going to use one of our community Bibles, it'll be on page 557, just for ease of finding it. So just before we get started on that story, a little bit of background. Um, It's been 12 years since last week. It feels like it, doesn't it? When we last heard from Luke, uh, we we saw this, this strange, crazy, dangerous, unbefitting of a king birth that Jesus went through. And we can piece together a couple things in the first years from some of the other gospel accounts. But once the family gets back to Nazareth, this podunk, boonie, blue-collar town that no one has heard of, once they get back to Nazareth, the only thing we know until we get to this story is that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem every year to observe the Passover feast. 
Now, a lot of you know what Passover is all about, but just so we're on the same page. Um, Passover is a, a feast. It's actually a week of feasting, which is awesome, um, that was meant to commemorate or remember a hallmark event in the history of Israel, over a thousand years before Jesus was born. Um, there, Israel found themselves in slavery in Egypt, in forced labor, and they're calling out to the Lord for generations. Lord, rescue us. So finally, one day, he enacts his plan to rescue them out of Egypt. And the culmination of, the, of this plan is a plague where the firstborn in Egypt, all the firstborn sons, lost their lives. Now, for the Israelites, in order to remain safe as this plague was happening, they were commanded to take the blood of a sheep or a lamb and put it on their doorpost, literally painted on their doorpost. And any doorpost that had blood on it would be passed over, hence the name, would be passed over, and the family would remain safe. Immediately after this plague goes through Egypt, the Israelites are released from their slavery. They move on their long journey to the promised land. And every year, every single year from that day, the Lord commanded them to get together and feast to remember that there are people who worship a God who saves them from their slavery and who moves them from death to life. And it's on one such feast that our story begins today. Jesus is 12 years old as this story begins. That's really important. I'll tell you why in a second. So the whole nation descends on Jerusalem. They have their week of feasting. The feast ends, and everybody packs up their stuff, and they begin traveling back to their homelands. They travel in little groups. So the Nazareth group gets together and gets all their stuff, and they begin the progress back to Nazareth. They get about a day into their journey. It takes about four or five days to make the walk. So they get about a day into the journey, and it's time to stop and set up camp. They unpack all their stuff, their tent and everything, get it all set up, and um, Mary and Joseph start to look for Jesus. He's probably just with the relatives, right? Probably just with the neighbors next door. So they're looking for him all over the place, and all of a sudden, as the minutes become longer, they begin to realize that they're living every parent's worst nightmare. They have left their son behind. And not just in a grocery store or a gas station for an hour. They left him in the middle of a city for a whole day. Talk about terror. So they gather up all their stuff quickly, and they rush back to Jerusalem. It takes them another day to get back. And once they get back to Jerusalem, they start looking everywhere. Where would a 12-year-old be? They're looking in like the arcade shop, in the video game store, the movie theater, candy shop. Where in the world could this guy be? For three days, they look all over Jerusalem for him. And finally, on the third day, last-ditch effort, they check the temple. And there he is, having a conversation with the leading scholars, Bible teachers of the day, and he is amazing them. He's amazing them with his knowledge of God's word. And you can almost hear the mix of emotion in Mary's voice. It's like this combination of elation, like, he's okay, thank God, and Jesus is like, you're welcome. And... Sorry, it was a little early for that, I know. So she's between this elation of, thank God he's okay, and Jesus, are you kidding me? You're, you're supposed to be perfect. Do you have any idea what you just put your father and I through? We spent three days looking for you. Now you might be thinking, okay, Mary, come on. This is Jesus. He's the answer to every Sunday school question since the dawn of time. Wouldn't you expect him to be in Sunday school? I mean, shouldn't that be the first place you're going to look for Jesus is at the temple? And if you're thinking that, then um, gold star, because that's actually exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 49 where he says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know 
that I must be in my Father's house. I mean, this is where we ought to expect Jesus to be. After all, the angel did tell Mary and Joseph that he was going to be the Son of God. The angel did tell them that he was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be the chosen one. He was going to be the one who would work salvation for God's people. This is where we ought to expect him to be. Is right here, smack dab in the middle of the temple. And there's one reason why it makes it even more it makes even more sense why he would be here in the temple. Do you remember how old he was? He's 12. And that's important because 13 comes after 12. I checked the math, I know. So 13 is a really important age in the life of a Jewish boy. It's when he comes of age. It's almost exactly the same as when we turn 18. We have the right to vote. We become accountable to the law as adults. We begin our vocational pursuits, right? Um, Whether that be you finish high school, maybe you go to college, maybe you start working right out of high school, you begin training for whatever you're going to do. And that's exactly what is going to happen when Jesus turns 13. He's going to begin his vocational pursuit. Now, they don't have colleges or career schools or anything like that at this time. What they would do at age 13 is a boy would choose his vocation. Most likely, it would be whatever his father does. And he'd become an apprentice of someone in that vocation. That's how he would learn to do his work. So we ought to expect, as Jesus is here in the temple, we ought to expect that these teachers are just clamoring over having him as their apprentice. Can you imagine the prestige? Oh, that guy Jesus? Yeah. I taught him. It's not a big deal. I, he, he learned everything from me. I mean, these guys, they're writing up all sorts of offer sheets, right? Full-ride scholarship, room and board. We're going to pay him a little under the table. You ought to expect that he's going to sign up right here to start his vocation as a minister, as a preacher, as a miracle worker. Which is why what happens next is probably the most surprising event in the whole story. And it's right here in verse 50. And 51, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus, God became flesh, the creator of the universe, the chosen one. Perfect Jesus follows his imperfect parents back home. And not just to get his things together, not just to wait out the time till he turns 13 and he can go start seminary in Jerusalem but to go work in his father's carpentry shop where he stays for 18 years. 18 years. This is where no one expects Jesus to be. But he goes and follows his parents home to work as a carpenter for 18 years. In fact, this time is so unremarkable that all the people who got together to try to write down what Jesus' life was like, they didn't even bother to write about it. So why? Why did he waste all that time? Why did he spend 18 years that he could have spent out preaching the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness that he is going to work? Why did he waste that time not doing miracles, bringing about justice in the land? Why did he go back to this carpentry shop Well, it's because he understood something that's really important. You see, this time in Jesus' life is probably the most profound insight into God's character because it's the most surprising. 18 years spent in a carpentry shop. 
And he did it because he understood this, that God cares more about who you are than what you do or where you go. God cares more about who you are than what you do or where you go. In other words, your character is God's main concern. Right? Too often we tend to think things like, well, if all my circumstances would align, if my experience would match my expectation, would meet my expectation, if God would bring me to the place I want to go, let me do the things I want to do, then I will be the person he wants me to be. And the truth is almost the exact opposite. You see, it's in the times when our experience doesn't match our expectation that our true character is revealed. And that's the character that God is concerned about. And it's in this time where Jesus spends 18 years in this carpentry shop that his character is revealed. And listen to what Paul has to say about this character that Jesus revealed to us when he wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. He said this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, too often when we talk about Jesus, we skip from the cradle to the cross, and we miss the carpentry shop. But it's here, in this carpentry shop, away from the religious, social, political center of Jerusalem, away from the fame and followership of his ministry, that his obedience has lived out for 18 years in a carpentry shop. The same obedience that started in the cradle and culminated on the cross lived out for 18 years in this carpentry shop. Here in this obscurity, Jesus' character is revealed to us. So we started this message by asking the question, what should we do when we are not where we expected to be? And the answer to that question is in one little word that is kind of tucked into this passage. I missed it the first couple times we read through it. You may have missed it too. It's one word that's really unpopular. It's a word that makes a lot of people cringe. It's a word that our our culture, our context really hates. It's a word that has definitely been abused in the past, but if it's embraced, if it's lived into in the same way that Jesus lived into it, it is the key to becoming the person that God wants us to be. It's the key to making wise decisions when our expectations don't meet, when our experience doesn't meet our expectation. And it is this, what should we do when we're not where we expect to be? We should submit. We should submit. It's right here in verse 51. And he went down with them and, came, with his, and uh, came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. This is the key. Submitting to God is the key to being the wise person who makes good decisions when our experiences don't meet our expectation. And God asks of this of us, not demands, he demands it of us, not because... Not because he wants to have some power play, he wants to have this little puppet show with our lives, or play a chess game with us. No, it's because it's what's best for us. And not only that, but because submission is fundamental to God's character. As startling as that may be. Let's look at the rest of that passage that we were looking at in Philippians chapter 2. Here's where we left off. And being found in human form... 
Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 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 God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God. I mean, he's fully God himself. He's right there on the same level as the Father. But he doesn't count that as something he ought to pursue. Instead, in humility, he submits to the will of the Father. He comes to earth as a little peasant baby born in a cave in a barn. And he lives out this life of obedience to God. And notice the therefore in that passage. It's not because of any great miracle Jesus did. It's not because of any great teaching Jesus taught or anything that he accomplished. It is because of his obedience, his lifetime of submission, that God has exalted him. The Father has exalted him to the place we expect him to be. Because he lived a life submitted to the Father. His whole life, not just the cradle, not just the cross, but the carpentry shop as well. A a quick word on submission before we move on to some more concrete application. Um, Submission doesn't make Jesus passive, not by a long shot. He's not sitting here just kind of accepting whatever comes his way. This is just my lot and I'll just deal with it. The great irony is that submission is actually the way, the path, for us to find the freedom that we crave. Think of it this way. Our culture, our context tells us that in order to be free, in order to be who we need to be, who we ought to be, who we're designed to be, we have to throw off everything that tells us what to do. We've got to throw off all the antiquated definitions of sexuality. We've got to throw off everything society says counts as contribution. Anything anybody says to me about what I need to do or who I need to be, I've got to throw it all off. The truth is that only in submission to God can we actually find who God wants us to be. Can we actually find true freedom? The ultimate power play is not the exercise of power, but it's actually giving it up to someone who has our best interests at heart and has the ability to bring about who we need to be. And that is God. Okay, so to make this a little bit more concrete for us, I'm going to offer two uh, quick ways that Jesus was submitted to God, that we can be submitted to God, um, and then we'll wrap this up. As we begin our new year and think about the things we want to see changing in our lives, the first way we need to be submitted to God is to be submitted to God's timing. Submitted to God's timing. Um, Jesus was submitted to this. We, uh, we've already covered that for 18 years he works in this carpentry shop, and I've got to wonder at what point during this time, at what point during this time does Mary start to say, okay, this isn't what I went through all that for. This isn't what I went through all the social scorn. This isn't what I almost lost my marriage for. This isn't what I gave a really dangerous birth in a barn for. I mean, come on, Jesus. When are you going to get after it? When are you going to be the Messiah? When are you going to go out and do the stuff that you were born to do? In fact, we know from other stories that by the time Jesus actually starts his ministry, Mary's kind of forcing his hand, right? He's kind of setting it up so that he's got to act. But Jesus isn't submitted to the expectations of others around him. Whatever he expects for himself, it's hard to understand how his deity and humanity interact, but he's submitted to God's timing. 
And God has him here in this carpentry shop. To illustrate how difficult it can be to, to be submitted to God's timing, I read about this, this story earlier this week I wanted to share. It's about a woman named Florence Chadwick. Not a lot of us probably know her name. She was a distance swimmer, and she peaked in her career in the 1950s. Um, she wanted to do this swim from Catalina Island to the coast of California. It was a 26-mile swim. So there's a New Year's resolution for you if you're still looking for one. 26-mile swim. So after months of training, she gets into the water one day on Catalina Island and begins to swim. 26 miles. There's a dense fog. There's a lot of wind. And she swims and she swims and she swims. After 15 hours of swimming, she can't see. She doesn't really know. She's going in the right direction. She begins to question whether or not she's going to be able to make it. So she turns to the people in the boat next to her and says, pull me out. I'm not going to make it. I don't have enough left in the tank. And they try to encourage her. No, no, no. Stay with it. Stay with it. Stay with it. But eventually, they pull her out of the water. And when she got out of the water, what she discovered was that she was less than a mile away from the coast. The next day in a news conference, she had this to say. She said, I'm not making any excuses, but I think if I could see the shore, I would have finished. One of the reasons it's so difficult to be submitted to God's timing is that we can't always see the shore. We don't know, always know how long am I going to be in this place where my experience doesn't meet my expectation. But God's timing is what's best for us. So what is he asking you to wait for? Is there something in your life that you're expecting, that you've worked for, that you deserve, that you don't have right now? What is God asking you to wait for? And can you be submitted to his timing? Because his timing is what's best. And if we get that down, we're halfway there. The second way we can be submitted to God as this new year comes is to be submitted to his present purposes. You see, it's one thing to be submitted to his timing and say, I'll wait for you, God. It's another thing entirely to be faithful in the midst of that waiting. It goes something like this, back to Starbucks where I was uh, working after I finished grad school. I, when I started my last stint at Starbucks, my last store, I knew exactly when I was going to be done. I knew the date when I would be done at Starbucks, I would move to Kansas City and come and start at Christ Community. And I survived my time at Starbucks by counting the amount of shifts I had left until I'd be done. And every single day, I would get into Starbucks and I would say, 54 more shifts, 53 more shifts, 52 more shifts. I'd actually write it on like my uh, beverage. This is a way to get myself through it. Somewhere around 50 shifts left. It's 4.30 in the morning. I'm in the back room stocking shelves. One of my coworkers walks up to me, and she says, Hey, Mike, I just thought you'd want to know I went to church this weekend. That's a really good decision. 50 more shifts. 50 more shifts. 50 more shifts. I'm really glad you went to church. 50 more shifts. 50 more shifts. She said, Yeah, and, you know, the pastor was preaching this sermon out of Romans about how some people go to hell and some people go to heaven. 50 more shifts. 50 more shifts. And I realized that because of my sin, I'm going to hell, and there's really nothing I can do about it to save myself. And so I went up afterwards, and I was crying, and I talked to the pastor, and, and we prayed together, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I want to live a life submitted to him. And within a month, she shared her, whole, her story with her whole congregation. She's been baptized. She's leading, leading a Bible study. 
She's teaching Sunday school to little kids. She's witnessing to the coworkers that I've worked with longer than she has. So why do I tell you that story? Because all that happened in her life with no thanks to the trained pastor who worked with her day in and day out, shift after shift. Because the only thing I could think about was 50 more shifts till I'm done. Submitted to God's timing, but not his present purposes. Wherever God has you right now, he has you there on purpose. And wherever God has you right now, he is moving and working. And if we are submitted to God's timing and to God's present purposes, we can work with him too. It's the great offer that he gives us. So, when you find yourself in a place where your experience does not match your expectations, your first question should not be, how can I manipulate my experience to make it match my expectation? But it should be this. Through this experience, am I becoming the person God wants me to be? Through this experience, am I becoming the person God wants me to be? Am I becoming increasingly submitted to his will in my life? Am I increasingly submitted to his timing and believing that's what's best for me? Am I increasingly submitted to his present purposes that he is moving right where I am and I can be a part of it? It's the key to becoming the person God wants us to be. And that's what he's concerned about. And if we are concerned about it too, we will be people who will make wise decisions when our experience does not meet our expectation. Okay, I want to close with this. If Jesus came to be just a really good teacher or just a really powerful miracle worker, I'm convinced that he would have started right here. Think about it. A 13-year-old who's teaching better than all the best scholars of the day, all the best Bible teachers of the day, who's working all these miracles. And he was a great teacher. And he was a great miracle worker. But he was so much more than just that. You see, this Christmas, we gather together to remember something just like the Israelites did at Passover. We gather to remember the coming of a God who has made a way for us to move from death to life and to be free from our slavery to sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never submitted your life to Christ before, to God before. And if that describes you, I want to tell you that you will never on your own be the person God wants you to be. I haven't been. My sin, our sin, it separates us from God. And like my friend at Starbucks figured out, on our own, we can't fix it. But Jesus, Jesus lived the life God wanted us to live. So that his perfection, his righteousness, his holiness could be attributed to us. And then Jesus died the death we were supposed to die so that we wouldn't have to die it. So that we could be forgiven of our sins. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus came back to life to offer us an eternal, unending life, those who are submitted to him. This is what makes Jesus worth submitting to. Because he has shown that he has our best interest at heart. And he has the power to make it happen. If you've never taken that step before, 
Uh, I'd love for you to, to come up after the service and find one of the pastors or really anybody around here who looks like they know what they're doing and ask them, what does it mean to be submitted to God? What does it mean to live a life submitted to Christ? We'd love to tell you all about it. This is what Christmas is all about. The coming of the one who offers us freedom from our sin. That's why we celebrate. Won't you take him up on that offer? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you were not content to leave us in our sin, but that you sent us one to live the perfect life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, and to rise again to a new unending life that is offered us. God, as we take time to remember the character that was revealed to us in that carpentry shop, we praise you that you have done this work on our behalf. I ask you, Lord, um, Holy Spirit, who is in us, in this room and in us, Lord, would you move us to a life that is submitted to you, that seeks your timing and your purposes, so that we might be people who reflect your glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Son whose coming we celebrate. Amen. Well, um, before Jesus' obedience was culminated on the cross, he left a meal to remind his followers exactly how much he will do for us and has done for us. As we gather together at the table to observe communion, we take the common bread to remember his body that was broken for us. And we dip it in the juice to remember his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you're not uh, from Christ's community normally, I just want to let you know how this works. Um, we practice what's called open communion, communion here at Christ Community, which means you don't need to be a member here um, in order to participate. We do ask that you would have made that initial decision to be submitted to Christ. If that describes you, you'll come down one of these two, two aisles and go around the outside of the dividers to one of our two communion serving stations. You'll take a piece of our gluten-free bread and dip it in the juice. In a group of four or six, you'll um, partake together. If you have a child with you who is yet to um, submit their lives to Christ, we ask that they not partake in this part of the service, but our servers would love to offer a blessing over them um, in the same way that Jesus does. This isn't meant to be a time that's rushed. This is meant to be a time to reflect, um, to pray, and to hear God's word. But before we gather at the table... Let us remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.